Now turn please to the New Testament reading in Acts chapter 7. <laughs> and there's a verse of scripture I want to speak to you today on. Acts chapter 7. It's just the Lord has really written it upon my heart in the, in the past week. And I want to share it with you today. We read Acts 7 and verse 9 about the patriarchs, how they were moved with envy. And what did they do? They sold Joseph into Egypt. But you note this, it says, but God was with him. That's all we need to know. But God was with him. Let's unite our hearts in prayer, please, as we seek the Lord together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank thee for the sacred pages of Holy Writ. We thank thee that God had a people in the Old Testament scriptures. He had his church in the wilderness. Lord, he had his church from the gate of the Garden of Eden. And we thank thee that God was with them. And I pray that thou will pour out of thy spirit upon us today and give us understanding, even as to how God is still with us in our own day and generation. Fill us with the power of God, the Holy Ghost, and bless not only the speaker, but those who will hear today. May there be conscionable hearing of the word of God, and may God take it and apply it to every life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 7, of course, records for us the great defense of Stephen just prior to his martyrdom when the Lord called him home to glory. And he gave a good account of himself. I don't think if I was just about to be put to death, I could give an account of myself as Stephen gave an account of himself. But what an opportunity he had to defend the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and to refute uh, the arguments of the scribes and Pharisees in their blind legalistic allegiance to the temple and the law of Moses. What had they charged Stephen with? Go back to chapter 7. Acts chapter 6, sorry. Acts chapter 6, verse 11. This was the charge that they leveled against him. They said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. This was an indictment, wasn't it? And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to uh, the council. Verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses uh, delivered us. So his defense was a defense of the scriptures. A man who's filled with the spirit of God will be a man who knows the scriptures of God. Because the scriptures and the spirit go together. And what Stephen did in the first 16 verses of his defense in Acts chapter 7 was to give, as it were, a historical overview of the book of Genesis. Because it was important for Stephen to show that God had a people called out of the world long before the official establishment of the Mosaic ceremonies or even before the tabernacle or the temple was built. And we talked last Sunday about the antiquity of the church so Stephen is trying to show the perpetuity of it in Acts chapter 7. And the purpose of his defense was to show that God had a people, God had a church 
long before the law was officially given, long before the tabernacle, long before the ceremonial law. And this was the conclusion of, of Stephen. If God had a church away back then, he will have a church even when that period passes. So even when the Mosaic period had passed and the ceremonial law had passed, Stephen was teaching the scribes, Pharisees, those that were interrogating him, God still had a church. And it was the same church. He begins with the call of Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees by which he was set aside by God. Abraham really was a trustee, if we could call him that, of the promises of the Old Testament church. And they had charged Stephen as a blasphemer of God. They had charged him as an apostate. And therefore he shows himself. This was important for him to show. No, I'm no blasphemer. I am no apostate. I am a son of Abraham. I am a spiritual son of Abraham. And I have an apostatized from that original faith of the Old Testament church. And he values very much that he's able to say that he's a faithful worshipper of the God of Abraham. And here he's called to show forth the glory of the God of Abraham. And we meet today here in Analong in this building here in the Money Dyer Road. And we're just worshipping the same God as Abraham worshipped. And we're glad today we're able to say we're sons and daughters by faith of Abraham. And we have the same faith, the same Lord, the same Master. One church, one faith, one hope. These scribes and Pharisees, they were proud of being circumcised. And he shows them very clearly here that Abraham was brought into communion with God prior to his circumcision. It wasn't on account of his circumcision. And then he goes on from verse 9 onwards uh, to speak of the continuation of Abraham's family. You see, family is important and your spiritual lineage is important as well. And it's good to be able to trace your spiritual lineage. And this is what Stephen was doing here. He's tracing the spiritual lineage. He was saying to the scribes and Pharisees, what I am preaching, what I am teaching, is, some, is not some new heresy, but this goes right back to the Old Testament scriptures and to Abraham himself. And now he's showing the continuation because the story is told of Abraham's great-grandson, the last of the patriarchs, Joseph. And he makes reference to here in verse 9. And especially his betrayal by his brothers. If you've ever been betrayed by those that are closest to you, you can sense even the edge in Acts chapter 7 and verse 9. He was the favourite of his father Jacob. We'll, we'll understand that a little bit more later on. And despite all the adverse circumstances that he faced in life as a young man, as an older man, and even the heavy burdens he carried right into his adulthood, verse 9 tells us of Acts chapter 7, God was with him. God was with him. He was about to die. I want you to place yourself in Stephen's position. He was about to be stoned to death. And that mob that was incensed by the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, just in a very short period of time, just in a few moments of period of time, they would take stones and they would hurl those stones on Stephen. 
and he would die looking up to heaven and seeing uh, the Son of God at the right hand waiting to receive him. If you look at this whole chapter, you not only see Old Testament history, but you look into eternity itself and to where the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is heading. Brethren and sisters, you might not be facing martyrdom this week. I hope not. You might not be facing death this week. I don't know that. But whatever you and I face this week, I want you to know if you're a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham, a true child of God, that God is with you. God is with you. And that should encourage our hearts. This was what Stephen took encouragement from just moments before he was about to die. Remember that. What, what was in his mind? This was the truth that was in his mind. God is with me. And the reality of it is, he's with you as well. Here in this building, and as we go from it and launch out into the new week, with all of its challenges, the truth of the scriptures is that God is with his people. I want to stop today and consider this text with you. And we're going to have to come back, I think, this evening to look at the fuller exposition of this from the book of Genesis. But we'll start this morning and we'll consider with you, if God is with you, how should that impact the way you live your life? How should that impact how you face the week that lies ahead? How should that impact how you will have to bear testimony for Christ in all of the various situations that you have to face? Well, first of all, notice from the life of Joseph in the Old Testament scriptures, that God is with us in every trial and in every trouble. In every trial and in every trouble we can say God is with us. He doesn't leave us. It's as if with some Christians God is with them when they're in a meeting and they're with other Christians and everything's going well. But when things start to go south as we would say, certainly God disappears from them. I want to show you something from the scriptures from the life of of Joseph that that could never be the case. If you go back again to the book of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Here we read of those early uh, life experiences of Joseph. But in verse 24 we read about him. Where was he? He's only a, he's only a young man. He's only an adolescent, approximately 17 years of age, and he's down in a pit. And his brothers are feasting at the side of the pit. And they've got their ears closed to their younger brother. But God is with them. Genesis chapter 37 and verse 24. It tells us, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. These patriarchs moved with envy. They were envious of their younger brother and they were jealous of him because of, of different, different aspects of his life. Chapter 37 verse 2 tells us that although he was only 17 years of age, he had, I believe, a degree of responsibility within the family that belied his age because he was given the responsibility by his father Jacob of reporting back to him what his brothers were doing. They were supposed to be minding the father's flocks and looking after the father's business. But I doubt if they were minding 
uh, their father's business. They were more up to their own business. And when uh, Joseph brought back the report to the father, it was not a good report that he brought back. And if you read then some of the commentators, some of the commentators tried to make it appear that uh, Joseph was only telling tales. And he was only trying to make it appear that he was, as it were, better on trying to tarnish the names of his brother. I do not believe that one iota that Joseph was doing such a thing. A.W. Pink, he, he makes this point in his own commentary that Joseph was not telling tales, he was telling truth. He was speaking truth. And he couldn't in all conscience remain silent when he saw that his brothers were fleecing his father and not doing what they were uh, committed to do and what they were entrusted to do. And if you think that is a harsh uh, overview of his brothers, you only, you, you only have to look at what they're at in Genesis 34 uh, and 24 and what they did afterwards to know that there was nothing really that these brethren wouldn't have done. And they were jealous of him because their father believed him, trusted him, and they didn't trust them. Verse 3 tells us that Jacob had made him a coat of many colors. And this has been sort of held up to ridicule. But if you look at other scriptures in the Old Testament, you will discover that such coats were given as a mark of distinction. Mostly the coats that were worn and those far off days would have been of one colour. But here was a coat of many colours. And that would have uh, separated that individual from all the other individuals. That individual would have stood out from all the other individuals. You see, it was a mark of royalty. It was a mark of something special. And many believe this was Jacob's way to distinguish Joseph. Born of Rachel from his half-brothers who were born of slave wives. He was making the difference. Do you know it's God and grace that makes the difference? It's not by birth that any difference is made of any of us because God found us all in the one place. In Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it's God's grace that makes the difference. And sets us apart from the world in which we live in. And if there's any difference in your life and my life in the world in which we live in. It's because God made us different. It's grace that made us different. Verse 4 of Genesis 37 tells us about the divine revelations that God gave to him. And his dreams. Remember his dreams that he, he dreamt about his, his sheaf. And his brother's sheaves would bow down to him. He dreamt about his star and how his brother's stars, even his mother and father, would bow down to him. And what was the result? Do you think that those brothers appreciated this news? His dominion, his, his kingliness, his royalty, do you think the brothers appreciated that? It made them even more envious. It made them even madder than what they were before. And when he came to visit his brothers to see what they were doing, remember at his father's request, he was sent by the father to visit his brothers. They conspired against him because they hated him so much. They envied him so much. They initially said, we'll kill him. We'll kill him. But Reuben persuaded them to cast him into the pit instead of murdering him. And he would come back later and rescue him out of the pit. But his plan didn't come to 
to fruition. Judah sensed an opportunity to make some easy money. And he suggested to his brothers that they sell Joseph. This was their brother, their half-brother, into slavery to a passing company of Midianites or Ishmaelites. And they sold him for what? For 20 pieces of silver. And they sold him into slavery in Egypt. Where, in all probability, they knew he would die. So they wouldn't have his blood upon their hands, but they would be culpable in his blood that would be shed. You know, envy, jealousy is an awful thing. Even in families, it's an awful thing. And these brothers had to confess years later their envy and their jealousy. How was God with Joseph? Everything seemed to conspire against him. He was the one that was in the pit. They were the one that had the money. They were the one that would go back to the father and would continue with the, with the family inheritance and get his part of the inheritance because he would be lost to them. How was God with Joseph in such dire circumstances? We'll turn over to chapter 50. This was his testimony. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Genesis 50 and 20. Now God's, this is God's overview through the eyes of Joseph as to what was happening even that very day. Joseph said to him, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. In that pit, God was overruling the evil that the brothers were perpetuating upon Joseph. God was overruling the evil. We, we would hesitate even to say that God would use evil, but God uses everything to advance his cause, his kingdom, his honor, his glory. A. Hodge, in his Outlines of Theology, gives the et etymology of the word providence. Now, this word providence, it's not found directly in the Bible, but it's a biblical doctrine. So the word just describes this, this overview, God overruling, God uh, in control of all events of life. Providence comes from a compound Latin word, pro and video, in other words, to see beforehand. So the divine foresight that is spoken of here in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph in the pit, but God overruling it, God overruling the evil for good so that many people would be saved even by the cruel, callous actions of those brothers on that day putting them into the pit. God was with them. God was with them. And God was arranging the events for the accomplishment of his predetermined purposes. You know, we can plan events, but we can't see how they'll work out. We can never see how they'll work out. But God not only plans, but he brings the purpose to fulfillment. There's a huge difference. The word providence conveys to us that God is governing all things in his creation so that they would be brought to the fulfillment of his eternal decree. 
And what was God doing at that very moment that young Joseph was in the pit and life seemed to come to an end for him and providence he was overruling. And you might feel in your own heart and in your own life today that all, all of life is against me. And you might, as it were, metaphorically be in that pit. But I just want to reassure you that God has a plan for where you are today, even in the pit. And in providence, he's overruling. God was further with, with Joseph as a slave in the house of Potiphar in Egypt. I try to emphasize that in the reading in Genesis 39. Genesis 39, verse 1 and 2. We read verse 2. Now he's, he's sold. He's, he's another captive. He was a free son. He was an heir. He, he held position in his own family. And now he's no longer the heir. No longer. He has no longer position in his own family. He, he's just a servant to an Egyptian that he's never met before. And yet we read here in verse 2, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. God had vouchsafed the same promise to his grandfather Isaac. I just love all the way that this line of grace is traced back. Because we serve a covenant keeping God. We serve a covenant keeping God. He has a covenant engagement with his people. He told us his grandfather Isaac. I will be with thee and will bless thee. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 3. The same promise was given to his father Jacob. What did he say to Jacob? He said I am with thee. <coughs> and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. In Genesis 31 and verse 3. He said to Jacob I will be with thee. Here we have the father. Here we have the grandfather. <coughs> and they're, they're in relationship with this covenant keeping God. He said I keep my promises. As I was with your great grandfather. As I, as I was with your grandfather. As I was with your father. I'll be with you. God was with them. Here we are in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible represents the world. And we're in the world. And your position today in the world mightn't be the position that you want it to be. And you might want to be in some other employment. You might even today want to live somewhere else. You might have all aspirations of what your life is going to be. Etc, etc. But I just want to reassure you today that God is with you. God is with you. Here in your place of service in this world, God is with you. And he says, I'll never leave you. I'll never, is that not enough? No matter what we face this week, it might be the place I want to be, but it's the place where God has put me. Therefore, it's the best place in all of the world for me. And he says, I'm with you where you are. Just as I was with Joseph, I'm with you. It couldn't be any more stark or, or more real to me. God was also with him in prison. We took time to read through all of chapter 39. We'll come back to the unfolding of that just a little bit later. But in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 21, once Joseph was put in prison, we read again, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. In every trial, in every trouble, at home, at work, even in the most adverse circumstances, we can claim the promise of God that he says, I'll be with you. 
I have gone to many homes, I've gone to bedsides, I've gone to deathbeds. And there's a passage of scripture I've read more probably than any other scripture is Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 and 2. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burnt, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. What, what assurance that brings to our heart and life today. Here was Joseph wrongly accused. Wrongly imprisoned. Everything just seems to be going on a downward spiral for him. And the Lord comes along to him and he says, Joseph, I'm with you. And because I'm with you, because I'm with you, God showed him mercy and blessed him and prospered him, even in prison. Matthew one twenty three tells us, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. This is the great Emmanuel principle. God sent his son into this world. They called him Jesus. And he came to be with his people in every trial, in every trouble, in every tear you shed. This is the promise of Emmanuel. I am with you. Acts chapter 7 and verse 9, the patriarchs moved with envy. What, what a, a wave of opposition he had to face. It was like a tsunami. It just swept him right down into Egypt. But the Lord was with him. Now what can move us if we know such truth, brethren and sisters, and we rest upon it? The Lord with us. I'm going to come back to this this evening because... I have spent so much time on it. The Lord has really imprinted it on my heart and life. And I would encourage you to come back tonight and we'll continue our unfolding of this great truth in Acts chapter 7 and verse 9, how the Lord was with Joseph. And that's what made all the difference. And that's how he faced death. And that's how you and I have to live and face death with the conscious knowledge the Lord with us. If you're not saved here today, the Lord Jesus comes and he knocks at your heart's door and he says, I want to be with you. Don't lock him out. Don't turn away from him. But open your heart, your life to him and bid him enter. As our brother reminded us, even in the children's talk, whilst you have time, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him.